0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1255. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. All right, men, you know that for a smooth and comfortable shave, I recommend what? Harry's Razors, of course. And Harry's is offering you a $13 value trial set. Listeners can redeem this offer over at harrys.com slash woods. Hi everybody, Tom Woods here. I was reading an interesting article the other day and I thought I would share it with you. I got it over at libertarianpapers.org. If you haven't visited that site, it's worth looking at because these are scholarly papers. These are papers that are extending libertarian thought in one direction or another, theoretical or historical or whatever. You're gonna find a lot of interesting topics covered in these papers. Also book reviews, You're going to find – in fact, just the other day at libertarianpapers.org, I found out about a great new book whose author I definitely want to feature on the show. So that's going to happen next week. But anyway, the paper I am looking at for the conversation today is from this year, 2018, by uh, Corey DeAngelis, and it's called Police Choice, Feasible Policy Options for a Safer and Freer Society. Now, I'm not going to give you the entire paper because you can just read it, I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1255. And it does cover a few points that have been covered in the past. But it's an interesting thought, because what the author is trying to do here is think about ways that we can improve the policing situation, even before everybody in society agrees with Murray Rothbard about how society should be arranged. So he's thinking about what are plausible ways we might at least be able to begin a conversation about knocking down the police monopoly under which we currently live. And he says, we're all in one way or another, and for one reason or another, unhappy with this monopoly system. Some people complain about police brutality or police shootings, or just an an unresponsiveness to the needs of various communities on the part of the police. Other people complain about long wait times or inefficiency or harassment or whatever or people complain about the allocation of police resources why are resources being allocated to keeping an eye on the speed people are going on some street that has five cars every 18 weeks when murders are going unsolved that kind of question there are a lot of complaints out there some people have all of them some people have just one or two but Complaints there are. And the author of the paper, and so what follows here really is just going to be my discussion of this paper, is arguing that one reason that we may be unhappy could be that there are no competitive pressures felt by police departments. So, what possible reason would they have to improve service or response time or effectiveness or learning de escalation skills a bit better? All these sorts of concerns are very much secondary when you don't have to worry about competitive pressures. The closest we come to competitive pressures is when you think about the bundle of services that you get in a particular neighborhood. Let's say you're moving, you're deciding which neighborhood to move into. A lot of people think about the quality of the schools, if they're intending to send their children to the public schools, let's say. Not that I advocate that, but that certainly is a factor When a lot of people are considering where they want to move, but they also consider the whole bundle of public services, and no doubt the quality of police services is included in that consideration. But as you can see, that's a very, very watered down kind of competition where people are deciding which neighborhood to move into. The effectiveness of the police force is a factor somewhere, who knows, in the 218 considerations they have. So, not exactly sharp enough, let's say, to keep a police department on its toes so that's not quite enough so what the author is proposing is an opt-out system where you could opt out of the police department to which you are geographically assigned in the same way that some of these school choice plans some of which are quite problematic for other reasons by the way but in principle it's acknowledged that under these plans you might be able to withdraw from the geographically assigned school and use the services of some other school. Why couldn't we extend this principle to police services? Police services are at least as important as education. If you're going to be murdered, your education is going to do you a whole lot of good. So these are at least as important. Why couldn't we, before we go out and say, let's immediately privatize the police and have competing security services in the absence of government police, Well, it's going to be a long time before you persuade people of that. But what if you just could persuade them that you want to be able to opt out? And particularly, I'm pretty sure Rothbard's view in the 1960s in response to the black power movement was that in many cases, the black community was not being policed in the way that it would prefer. And so what if they had the option to police themselves or to contract out to some other kind of police service that might be more attentive to what they need? What would be the problem with that? Why wouldn't we want to do that? And so likewise, this opt-out proposal. And really, that was kind of like what Ron Paul was saying in general about all kinds of government services. Just an overall opt-out option was what he was looking to propose. So when we think about what kinds of problems this might solve, he says, for example, under the current system, as I indicated before— Police may not particularly see the need to learn more effectively how to de-escalate certain situations, and he writes, perhaps it is rational that police officers are using violence rather than difficult psychological techniques. If officers know they are not going to be rewarded for skillful de-escalation and that they will not be punished for violent acts, they may be more likely to use violence since it minimizes their own risk of death. By the same token, a police department that happens to do a very good job at ensuring public safety does not get financially rewarded for doing so. So the kinds of rewards and punishments that naturally exist in a market economy are essentially absent in this as in other government sectors. So why should we be surprised that the results are what you might expect from a monopoly? So the paper then goes through various historical examples of private policing because I think that's important. We can theorize all day long, but a lot of people might say, that sounds like a nice theory, but until I've heard that it's been tried, I'm not so sure I want to roll the dice on it. So we do get some history here. I would recommend reading Bruce Benson's book, The Enterprise of Law. That really is a very good historical overview. And it's a book that a lot of people recommend, but equally important and maybe more to the point of our topic for today is his more overlooked book, To Serve and Protect, Privatization and Community in Criminal Justice. There he gives a lot of examples. You'd be very surprised at the actual examples of private security that exist today. And it really helps to break down resistance when you say, well, it's already happening, so it's not really as big of a leap as you think it might be. And I'm pretty sure I heard a statistic once that there are twice as many private security guards or employees as there are police, but don't hold me to that. I feel sure I've heard that somewhere. Now, of course, they're not performing quite the same function as police, but they're not a million miles removed either. So anyway, we get brief discussions of historical examples. So um, he begins with 17th century England and gives examples of in the absence of a government-provided police force, which really did not exist at that time, how people dealt with crime and solving crime and, and restitution and matters like that. He also talks about private rights protection in ancient Rome, talks about the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. Modern police forces as we know them are very, very recent inventions. So it is interesting to go back and see what other methods were available to people to resolve disputes and to protect against crime? So there's a little bit of this in here. For that, I, I I recommend the two Bruce Benson books, and I'm going to link to both of those at tomwoods.com/1255. They're really really great books. But then we get to the example of Detroit, and here I'm going to link to yet another thing on the show notes page, and that is my episode with Dale Brown of the Detroit Threat Management Center. That guy is just amazing. I mean, first of all, look at the challenge that he or anybody else is facing in Detroit. You've got, as of the most recent data that we've got from the the Census Bureau, 39% of the population of Detroit lives in poverty. Per capita income is about $15,500 or so. The crime statistics are terrible. Detroit is the most violent city in the U.S., 13,705 violent crimes. In 2016, the violent crime rate was 5.3 times the national average in 2016. And so, what's interesting about what Dale Brown has done with the Threat Management Center is given that he's living in a situation where the government police force just cannot keep up with all the crime, they cannot handle it. In fact, the Detroit police have even issued public statements warning that because the city is so dangerous, People should enter at their own risk. That's the situation Dale Brown faced. And he had to come up with creative ways. If if he was just going to duplicate what the police were already doing, well, maybe that's not going to have the results that he might want. So what he points out, what he pointed out on my show, and this is one of the episodes people at the time were saying this must be one of the best ever episodes of the Tom Wood Show. It's episode 597 So you can find it at tomwoods.com slash 597, and I'll link to it on today's show notes page. He said that he's trained, he's gotten his employees trained in negotiation and de-escalation tactics in situations that might otherwise turn violent. And then also there's the matter of, well, what about people who couldn't afford the police services? If you were to, let's say, have an opt-out Policy. Well, we have the example of Dale Brown, once again, because he provides security services for free to people who can't afford them. He also does the same for senior citizens and victims of domestic violence and stalking. So far, none of his employees have been killed. None of his customers have been injured or killed since the company was created over 20 years ago. And he says – that he's managed through his services to reduce violent crime by 90% in some neighborhoods. Now, let me clarify, by the way, the the proposal that is at the heart of this paper is that there ought to be, if not a voucher system, then some kind of a tax credit equivalent to, let's say, 75% of what the government is spending per capita on police. And you would get that credit and you could use it to subscribe to your own, you know, the police services of your choice. Now, just to put some numbers on this so that we can wrap our heads around the magnitudes involved, the city of Dallas, for example, in 2016, if you look at the amount of money spent on police services, it comes out to about $382 a person. In New York City, it was about $644 per person. So you would get some chunk of that as some kind of a credit that you could spend trying to find your own services, and that would introduce competitive pressures that would be helpful. Now, anyway, back to the historical examples. Of course, the the gold rush and the Old West in the late 1840s and beyond are often cited as examples of what happens when you don't have that monopoly power in force to coerce people. They say, look at the wild violence that occurred In that case. But actually, that's more or less a myth that historians have spent quite a long time debunking. And what's also left out of the story is not just how relatively peaceful it was, especially astonishing given that it had every factor imaginable going against it. Social trust was low. You're dealing with people who are not putting down permanent roots. They're just there to make their fortune and and leave. You've got racial differences. You've got people coming to California from as far away as China to strike it rich, all different kinds of people, you would think this is the most inauspicious possible case to try out. And yet we actually find there were private institutions that dealt with, let's say, establishing people's land titles and adjudicating disputes and matters like this. It actually worked quite well. And we, I did an episode on that on this show some time ago too. So I'll also link to that on the show notes page. Uh, The the book to read here is The Not-So-Wild West. Uh, Maybe it's The Not-So-Wild Wild Wild West. I forget which one it is, but by uh, Terry Anderson and P.J. Hill. And that's a book actually published by Stanford University Press. So that's a big deal that emerged from an article they had written in the late 1970s for the Journal of Libertarian Studies. So worth looking at. So um, in this particular paper that I'm talking about, we read this. The California Gold Rush of 1849 enticed thousands of people to move to the West Coast. During that time, groups of criminals such as the Regulators and the Sydney Ducks attacked local businesses and households, but a government police did not exist in 1849. Because the San Francisco inhabitants could not rely on a government police force to protect them, they had to privately provide the service. The private police force came into existence and protected San Franciscan households and neighborhoods without the need for coercive revenues. Private police firms such as the San Francisco Patrol Special Police still exist and provide valuable services to citizens. Scholars have noted that San Francisco's private police are more cost-effective than off-duty police officers. Then he goes on to say, look, there are many other Lesser examples, major railroads in the U.S. and Canada still have large private police forces. Private law enforcement officers or security officers in South Carolina are authorized by the state to make arrests, respond to service calls, and give traffic tickets. Oh, where would we be if they didn't have the authority to give traffic tickets? All right. Now, before I go on to some – a few criticisms of this kind of approach, let me say something about the beard, which I have definitively decided to keep, at least for the time being. Remember, I I had to grow it out because of a skin issue, and then I could have shaved it off because it was all resolved. And I was telling people, enjoy it while you can, my friend, because this thing is being shaved off the first possible opportunity. But I don't know, I've kind of come to like it for a lot of reasons. So I think I'm keeping it. So what does this mean for Harry's razors, the official razors of the Tom Woods Show? Well, unless you're going to look like a caveman, you still do have to shave Some part of your face, particularly the neck area. And the neck area is really the most sensitive area of all. you got to be super careful down there. And so I'm still getting that close shave that I love with Harry's. Now, you can go out there and buy a razor that's going to read the news and weather to you. Or you can get a razor that has what you need, which is a sharp, durable steel blade. And that's what Harry's specializes in. They bought a factory that's been making some of the highest quality blades in the world for over 95 years. Now, they stand behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision. So they created a trial offer that you can claim at harrys.com woods. What is in this $13 value trial set? Well, you got a weighted ergonomic handle, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Listeners in my show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash woods. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash woods to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. All right, back to our conversation here. Well, it's not really a conversation, is it? Unless you're talking back to me in the car, and I can't hear you anyway, so it's more of a monologue. So let's go into some of the criticisms. Now, there is in the paper more discussion than I've given about the actual nuts and bolts of how the policy would work and how it would be funded? I mean, would you you know would you just be doing a tax credit or would whatever I mean, all those details you can you can take a look at. I'm more interested in the big picture question and then of course, one of the main objections is, well what if different police forces start fighting it out in the streets? and you can look in the paper for that Bob and I Bob Murphy, and I have covered that in an episode. In fact let me write that one down because that's a really, really good one. One of the arguments there is that given that unlike the state, a private firm does not have a bottomless amount of money that it can just grab. It's a private firm, and so it needs to pay for things out of its own revenues. So the idea of a war is just unthinkable. How could they possibly sustain it? So the incentive is actually, as it is in many competitive fields, for the different firms to figure out resolution mechanisms and so that nothing ever actually gets to that point. But uh, there's, there's some discussion of that, of course, here in the paper. There's a claim made that What we're dealing with with policing is a public good, and so-called public goods in economics are goods that it's assumed the market will underproduce, and therefore the government must step in and produce them. But this is a weak argument when we talk about police because when we think about – first of all, we have examples of private policing, so that shows that it can be done. But they may say, well, policing could be privately produced, but it will be underproduced. But the two criteria in economics for what constitutes a public good are excludability and non-rivalrousness in consumption. So that is to say, if you are providing me the service, is it possible for you to deprive somebody else of the service? Or in providing it to me, are you really providing it to everyone? So let's say plumbing services, for example. You can exclude non-payers. The plumber just doesn't show up to your house. You're excluded. A plumbing service would satisfy that requirement. A plumbing service, that is to say, would not be a public good. It would satisfy the requirement of a private good because you can exclude. A public good is one where it's not possible to exclude non-payers. Non-rivalrousness in consumption means that, let's say – I'll give you an example. Let's say there's a fireworks show. Is my viewing the fireworks show consuming a portion of that fireworks show – so there's less for you to consume. Well, the very idea is absurd. The fact that I'm sitting there watching the fireworks show does not diminish the number of fireworks or their brightness or loudness. Well, so, so they would say that's like a public good because it's non-rivalrous because my consumption of it does not deprive you of the consumption of it. Whereas a plumber is rivalrous in consumption because... One plumber can only be used by one customer at a time. When I use the services of this plumber, there's one fewer plumber available to you, whereas a fireworks show is not quite the same way. Um, But when we look at these, we see that police actually don't satisfy either of these requirements. Of course, you can exclude people. If they don't subscribe to your security service, then they don't get services. Of course, you can exclude. So that's not a problem. And As with many things, of course, even though you can exclude, it makes sense in many situations, nevertheless, to provide pro bono services for a lot of reasons. Uh, But anyway, but in principle, of course, you can exclude people. And secondly, it is rivalrous. Of course, it's rivalrous, because if I am using security services, then there are fewer security services left for you to use. So it doesn't even really pass these requirements. So what people may mean when they say that, policing is a public good is simply they're just using the term colloquially they're not using it the way an economist would use it strictly they just mean it's something they think the public authority should provide they say there are positive externalities to some people's use of police services you know let's say you know I'm I'm using police services and that means that my rights are now protected and I now feel safer, and as a result of that safety, I may be more productive. I may produce more stuff, be more likely to trade. And so there are these ancillary spillover benefits, and that means, according to the public goods literature, that we need the government to come in and, and subsidize still further production of these sorts of, of services. But there's no non-arbitrary way to know the precise amount of of any one service to be provided, even police services. There would be a point where, I mean, we can't say, oh, you could never spend too much on police. Yes, you could. If you spent all your resources on police and none on food, that would be too much. So there really is no non-arbitrary way to know precisely what amount of resources should be spent on police services apart from well, frankly, what people would be voluntarily willing to spend on them. But even this proposal is not quite going that far. It's saying we're going to take the budget as given, but we're simply going to say individuals would be allowed to direct the spending of that money. And moreover, although next week I'm going to be talking about public goods, we've done that in a few episodes, I'm going to be having a whole episode on it. By this logic, I mean, think about Hans Hoppe gives this example. Think about the fact that if I am wearing underarm deodorant, this has positive externalities because you're not subject to a terrible odor coming from me. Maybe there's a pleasant odor coming from me and you didn't have to pay for that. And there it is just being provided to everybody. So by the logic of public goods, why would this not mean that we would need to subsidize my underarm deodorant? Or maybe I take a a course on how to be a more pleasant person That obviously has spillover effects on society. So should we be subsidizing courses? You see, this could go on forever, and we would have no non-arbitrary way of determining how many become-a-nice-guy courses we ought to subsidize. So as soon as you go down that road, it's just a trap. You never get out of it. And then finally, people will say, well, policing is too important to be in private hands. But it's not as important as food, and food is in private hands. And we've seen what happens when food is not in private hands, what kinds of disasters can result from that. We've seen how states around the world have trouble managing uh, very often just even simple things. And moreover, we've got state services that tend to be unresponsive because they face no competition. Nobody is competing to see who can serve you the best. But if they did, maybe we would get better services. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. Grab my brand new ebook, by the way, The Deregulation Boogeyman, because you do face this objection from your friends. You do. Let's face it. Oh, the financial crisis was caused by you libertarians and your stupid deregulation. No, no, no. You have to be able to blow that out of the water, not just slightly parry it. You have to blow that out of the water. And you can do that with my new ebook, and you can get it for free at regulationmyths.com. See you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.